this morning. We are, for the last time, in the book of Philippians together. So Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse, verse 14 this morning. Verse 14. And it says, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. Supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. If we can reflect back on when we first started talking about the book of Philippians together, we had to do a little bit of of study. We had to do some uh, research on who is this church? Where are they located geographically? What kind of history is involved in the writing of this letter to this church? And uh, we talked about this church. We talked about its beginnings. We looked at Acts chapter 17. We, we talked about how the church came to be and what those, the situation was there and how many people would have been there. Do you remember we said that most likely the church in Philippi around this time would have been a gathering very similar to ours. Um, and then we also learned that Paul is in prison. Well, where is he exactly in prison? Some people say he's in Rome. Some people say he's in Ephesus. Some people say he's in Caesarea. Some people say he's in who knows where. We don't know exactly where he is. We have our guesses. Um, but it wouldn't have been very long after he wrote um, or after he uh, visited Philippi to establish a church that he wrote the letter to the church because he references very recent events. All right, I uh, have a map for you here. You may recognize it. All right, and so we have three different areas, three different regions that I have highlighted for you on this map, which is Asia, Macedonia, and Achaia. And so we, we see this is Paul's second missionary journey, and you follow this bright blue colored line, and you see where he came from. He makes kind of a, a, a half circle here, and he kind of comes back to where, where he was. And so we see Philippi here, and then Thessalonica down to Corinth, and then he cuts back over to Ephesus. And so Paul is making this journey, and at some point during this journey that he's reflecting back on his visit through Thessalonica and from Philippi. So you see Thessalonica is not very far from Philippi. Now there were two towns in between uh, that Paul also visited, but he, he came through there and he landed in Thessalonica. And it was in Thessalonica that he went to the uh, synagogue as was his custom and he reasoned with them there for three weeks trying to prove to them from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was the Christ. Well, some people liked that message there in Thessalonica and some people, many of them, did not like the message and they formed a mob and they started uh, doing some very violent things toward the church. And so they ended up taking Paul and sneaking him out of Thessalonica in the middle of the night so as to not be caught by the mob. So this happened right after his visit to Philippi. But why are we talking about Thessalonica? Well, it's because Paul just brought up Thessalonica. He said, it was kind of you to share in my trouble, and you Philippians, you yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, you see the region of Macedonia there, and he's going down to another region. He says, when I left Macedonia, uh, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. And even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once. And again, the Philippians shared in Paul's trouble here by sending him help for his material needs. And that's a very important part to what Paul's getting at here. 
And uh, you might think, well, that's obvious. That's pretty plain in the text. That's what's happening here. Yes, it is plain, isn't it? But we have to understand, what is Paul about to tell us? What is he about to give us teaching concerning? What is he about, how is he going to instruct us based on what he's saying here? He's saying that the Philippian church shared in Paul's trouble as he was in his missionary journey by helping him materially. He needed help and they helped him. Not only while he was in prison by sending Epaphroditus, they've done this before. They sent him help when he was in Thessalonica. And now while he's in prison, whether it be Ephesus or Rome or wherever, they have sent him even more help again. And so he's telling them, thank you for helping me in my needs. I had needs and you met them and I'm very thankful to you. He even writes to the Thessalonian church. You know, we have the letters. We have two letters to the Thessalonian church. uh, First Thessalonians and second Thessalonians. And Paul talks about his stay in Thessalonica and about how he was needy, in a sense, during his stay in Thessalonica. Just read. I just have a couple of verses here for you. So this is 1 Thessalonians 2.9. Listen to what he says about his stay in Thessalonica. For you remember, brothers, our labor and our toil. We worked night and day we might, so that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim the gospel of God. So Paul and his companions arrive in Thessalonica and they need to eat. They need just basic material needs, right? So they have to have money. And in order to get money, what did they do? Paul says, we labored, we toiled night and day so that we would have money, so that we could eat, so that our needs could be met while they proclaim the gospel of God. He says it again in 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 3, 7 and 8. For you yourselves know how to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. So he kind of repeats the same idea, doesn't he? And so what's happening here? Paul is on a missionary journey, but he has basic material needs. And so while he's in Thessalonica, he's killing himself, working night and day. You know what that feels like, I think many of you in this room, because I know you. There's a lot of hard workers in this room. You work. You know what it is to be exhausted. And then on top of your work, what do you do? Paul is in the middle of a missionary operation here to preach the gospel in much opposition. Many people didn't like him being there and yet he was working day and night just trying to meet his basic needs and he has all this pressure on him. And so the Philippian church learns of this and they say, Paul, we want you to be relieved of this burden. We don't want you working so much. We want you to give more of your time, if nothing else, so that you can be more refreshed to preach the gospel. And so we want to give you some help so you don't have to work so much. How do you think this made me feel? about overjoyed for how similar the mindset of this church is for me. How from the beginning, you have said, we want to ease your burden of work. For those of you in this room who don't know, I was working full time. And at some point in that, going to school full time, in addition to that, while establishing this church. And the church kept as they could as it was within their means, saying, we want to relieve you of the work so that you can focus here so that you don't have to be so burdened and consumed. And so we want to help you out financially. And you did it again last week. I told Jimmy, I I I had zero expectation. I didn't even know it was on the agenda. But I'm saying this to encourage you in that as Paul is encouraging this church by saying thank you, I want to also say thank you. I want to say thank you for meeting my needs. Thank you for seeing my work as important and for seeing other work that I do on the side, which I have been doing for years, as you want to help relieve that, and I'm thankful for that. The Philippians heard about Paul. They sent him money. They want to invest in his ministry. They want to take part in it. They want to share in it. The word he uses, therefore, is koinonia, sharing in his trouble. And we've talked about this word a lot. They want to have a partnership in Paul's ministry. And how can they do it? We want to help you. We want to give you time. We want to relieve your burden of work. And so here, we want to help you. And so this is how they can help. And so they do it. And then we have verse 17. 
not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I'm, I'm well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus the gift she sent, it was a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable as pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Okay, so he says, uh, I'm going to kind of take these few verses in, in reverse for a second because I'm going to go to the verse that, that sticks out to us, um, which is on the screen. And my God will supply every need of yours in Christ Jesus. My God will supply every need of yours. So what is being said here exactly? And here's why I'm bringing this up. Do you find yourself in financial need, material need, ever? Ever. Is that ever a situation for you? Is that ever a struggle for you? Do you want to know how to handle financial struggle and need? Faithfully. According to what the scriptures say, how do I handle my material needs? How do I handle times when I don't have how do I do that? What, what does that look like faithfully? D- does, God, does God want me to not be in need? Do, is it God's will always for everyone that we not be in financial need, but yet that we have, and that we have in abundance? Is that God's will for everyone? There are those who preach a gospel, it is not the gospel, but it is a gospel, that says God always, always wills for you to be in financial prosperity. And if you're not, it's your lack of faith. It's your lack of giving. It's your lack of service. It's you. It's your fault. It is not God's will for you. You're in sin somehow. So what does it mean here when Paul is making kind of in a sense a promise here, it seems like, right? God will supply every need of yours. Why? Because you supplied my needs, right? Because you supplied my needs, God is going to supply your needs. Therefore, if you want to be supplied in your needs, give money to people in ministry. But think about how true that has become for many televangelists. How do they make their money? By saying, if you give me money in support of my ministry, God is going to send you this blessing. So if we don't interpret this properly, it's going to really affect things. Is that why hermeneutics is so important? We have to have proper biblical interpretation. What is the Bible actually saying here? We want to make sure and interpret it properly, do we not? Because this really could affect how we live, how we understand the Christian life. I want to I take you back to verses 11 and 12 for context. We, we, read, we read this already. We focused on it. But just look at verses 11 and 12 for, for a moment. He says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every, every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. And the secret is this. Give your money to people in ministry and God is going to send you money back in return tenfold. That's the secret, see? I was in, I was in need and I wasn't giving my money away, so therefore God couldn't get me out of my needy situation. Wrong. And t- completely wrong. It's important to understand here that Paul has been in situations where he did not have food. He was hungry. Paul has been in situations where he did not have money. He was needy. Do you see that? The point that Paul has been making is this, is that when Paul was lacking material needs, he was sustained spiritually. Do you see it? Because that was the secret. Is that Paul has learned how to find contentment in life, whether he has or he doesn't have. Whether I have much or whether I have little, whether I'm hungry or whether I'm in abundance, it, it doesn't matter. Whatever situation I'm in, I've learned the secret. I can do all these things, all these situations I can face through Christ who gives me strength. 
You see, it's a spiritual sustaining, not a material sustaining. So we have to get our categories right here. We have to know what is being said and what is not being said. A question I ask, sometimes I, when I'm studying a passage, I, I ask questions to myself and then I answer them. And that's kind of how I, I, I think about the sermon in a sense. One of the questions I ask myself is, is there a one-to-one cause and effect relationship between giving and receiving? Because is that what's being said here? Is there a one-to-one correlation between giving and receiving? In, in the sense that I, I give so that I may receive. Is that what Paul is teaching us here? Do other passages of Scripture teach that? Why did Paul find himself in a needy situation where he didn't have food and money? Was it because he was being unfaithful? What did Paul do when he didn't have food and money? Do you have a need? God will supply it but only if you're giving money away. It, we understand that that's, it's not making sense, does it? Another question I asked is this. Is, is I put this one on the screen because I'm going to answer it for you. Is Paul saying that a person's material situation proves their spiritual condition? If that were the case, here's what we could do. You could simply come in like wearing a t-shirt with how much money is in your bank account, how about your net worth. And, and therefore, you, you get front row seat. Every, whoever has the most net worth that week you get front seat, you know, you, you get a better chair. Uh, I don't, maybe that's the worst chair. I don't know. You can sit in the back. I don't know, I don't know what the best chair is. Uh, but you, you get special treatment because you are, are more spiritual. Or we all need to bow down to you and listen to you because clearly you're the more spiritual person because you are more materially blessed. Is it always a blessing to have your material needs net, met? Is it always a blessing to have your material needs met? That's a weird question to consider, isn't it? I would strongly answer no. It has been the greatest time of humbling and spiritual growth and maturity for me and dependence on the Lord when my material needs were taken away and that was a blessing. That was the blessing. When God takes away, when I become reliant on my things, when I become reliant on money, how are we going to make it? We don't have enough money to pay our bills this week. Literally, I don't have the money to pay this bill. What are we going to do? We're not going to have health insurance. I have kids. What what are we going to do about this situation? I don't know how to handle this. We don't have money. What are we going to do? I've literally been in that situation. And Paul says, in in whatever situation you find yourself, whether you have much or whether you have little, you need to learn the secret of contentment with your life. Because your spiritual condition is not contingent upon your material status. Just because you don't have doesn't mean the curse of God has fallen on you. Could be the actual very blessing of God. Listen to a few Proverbs here. Proverbs 22, 1 and 2. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. Favor is better than silver and gold. The rich and the poor meet together, and the Lord is the maker of them all. Sin may lead into poverty. If we're answering, is there a one-to-one correlation between spiritual Uh, between your material uh, situation, your spiritual condition, is there a one-to-one correlation? Well, sin may lead into poverty. Proverbs tells us that. Love not sleep, lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes, you will have plenty of bread. It is true that your sin could lead you into poverty. But even when you find yourself in poverty, does it mean that it's a curse of God? Or for the Christian, are you going to realize that in every situation you find yourself, God is going to give you all the blessings of Christ in your situation. You realize how Romans 8, 28, and 29 makes sense here, right? 
because God is constantly working all things together for your good, whether you fell into sin and caused that situation or not. God is going to work through all the situations and conditions in your life when you have much, when you have little, when you're in need, when you're not in need, when you can pay your bills, when you can't. You have a job, you don't. Riches may also lead into sin. Deuteronomy 8.17 Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. How great a temptation that is. Because you can say, look at where we were five years ago or ten years ago, and look at where we are today. Look at who I've made myself today. Look at where I've come, and how did I get here? By my hard work is how I got here. By my wisdom is how I got here. By my might is how I got here. By my strength is how I got here. So you, just toughen up already, and you can possibly maybe be where I am one day. As if having all your material needs met is the end-all, be-all of life. Do you know that having all your material met, your material needs met, and having them met in abundance is the goal of life? That's not the goal of life. Having stuff is not the goal of life. Being able to have all the money in your bank account that you could ever want is not the goal of life. Having your house paid for is not the goal of life. And it's important that we understand a very simple concept. If I were to ask you this, you'd get it right, but let's, let's apply this to what we're talking about here is that God is sovereign over your material situation. Which means, when Paul found himself in plenty, the Lord was sovereign over that situation. When Paul found himself in want, when he didn't have food and money, God was sovereign over that situation just the same. Likewise, when you find yourself in plenty, God is sovereign over that situation for you. And when you find yourself in need, God is sovereign over that situation in your life. But does it mean that we simply sit back and do nothing if God is sovereign over our situation? Again, doesn't this come up all the time? If God is sovereign over it, then I'll just throw my hands up and wait for God to do something. There is a line that is hard for us to define, but yet a line, nevertheless, between God's, God's sovereignty and our responsibility. Just because God is sovereign doesn't relieve you of your own personal responsibility to be prudent, to be wise, to be faithful, to be a good steward of the resources God has given you. Paul wants them to learn this secret as he has learned the secret of contentment, that God will supply everything they need. He says, not that I seek the gift, but the fruit that increases to your credit. So what's this fruit? So you give to Paul in ministry and they get fruit in return. See, I told you there's a one-to-one correlation here, right? You give money away and you get stuff in return. Is that what he's saying? You gave money to me and now God is going to bless you with fruit. The best way to understand what Paul is saying here is this, is that the support of Paul's material needs proved that they had experienced spiritual progress. That's what the fruit is talking about here. It's, Paul is saying, I, I recognize here when you gave me this gift that it's, it's, it's because of the fruit of righteousness that you're bearing in your life. And so when I receive this gift, I rejoice because I see the fruit that is continually increasing. This is fruit. That you doing this proves that you're making spiritual progress. And so he's, rejo- he's rejoicing. He's saying, I rejoice more at knowing that you are maturing as a congregation more than you've given me money. Not that I seek the gift in itself, but I'm, I'm overjoyed that you have fruit, that you're bearing fruit. Could the fruit be something else? A passage kept coming into mind for me as I was thinking about the theological implications of these things because we have to wonder why give? What, why giving money? What, this, why do I give money? And is it a spiritual thing to give money? Yes, but it's a material thing. It's a practical thing to give. Yes, it is. And by that I mean when you give, 
you're giving to God, and that's true, you're also giving to make sure that this building is warm when it's cold outside. Agreed? And that if something's broken, we can fix it or replace it. We're, we're giving to pay our, our bills and sustain the ministry and operations here, right? Could we be sustained without having those things? Without a doubt. We have a building right now. doesn't mean we will next week. It doesn't mean we'll cease being a church. Right? I try to correct my children when they say we're, we're going to church. You just can't get over it, can you? Is we're going to church, but we are the church. What does that mean? We're going to the church. We're going to clean the church. We're going to work at the church, but we are the church. I, what is that? I don't know. There's a weird thing about church, isn't there? But we have to have a proper understanding that we understand that we are the church, but yet we gather as the church. That's a better way to say it. We're going to gather as the church. Where, though? At the church building? That, I know it's strange, but we have to consider these things. But when we talk about giving... Uh, the passage that kept, kept coming to mind for me is 2 Corinthians 9. 2 Corinthians 9. Um, and I'm going to read verses 6 through 8. It says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Pause. So there is a one-to-one correlation between giving and receiving. Do you see the battle here? It seems like there's not, but it seems like there is. What is it? When I give money away, should I expect money in return? When I give money away, should I expect that God's going to solve my material situation? What does it mean? Well, simply speaking, when he continues here, it, it helps to make sense. Each one must give as he's decided in his own heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all, all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. What is the correlation? The correlation is spiritual. Because you receive grace, yes. You receive sufficiency in all things, yes. So that you might abound in every good work, yes. And part of this being that when you give money away and your heart is to give to support gospel-related things, God is going to continue to supply seed to the sower. That's what God is saying in that passage. But it doesn't mean that when we give money away and our hearts we're expecting, I'm giving money away because it's a spiritual thing here, and I'm giving what I have so that God might fix my material problems. I'm giving money away so that God would bless me financially. But if we're giving money away, thinking about us, me, my needs, then it is not about giving at all. It's about receiving. You see the big difference? So right now, I'm, I'm just asking you, when you give money, we're talking about money here. I don't talk about money very much. I hate money. I hate everything about money. It's a necessary evil. But when we talk about money, We have to make sure that we're thinking about it biblically. And when we give money away, we need to make sure that we're thinking about it biblically. When you give money, it's not for you. When you give money away, it's a giving. Or it's just like if I were to give a gift. And if I give a gift to you, it's only so that you will give a gift to me, right? I didn't realize it was Allison's birthday yesterday, right? Missed your birthday. But I could have said, okay, Allison, I don't, I don't remember. I don't think has ever bought me a birthday present. I could be wrong. But I'm, but I'm thinking, I, next time my birthday rolls around, I want a gift from Allison. So, so therefore, what am I going to do? I'm going to get her a gift on her birthday so that she feels compelled to give me a gift on my birthday. Or I want Christmas gifts from everybody, therefore I'm going to give a Christmas gift this year so now they feel compelled awkwardly to give me a gift next year. But in everything I give, what am I thinking about? I'm thinking about what I'm going to get in return. It's about me. 
It's very selfish. And it's just the kind of giver that God wants. God wants a cheerful giver, one who is literally giving away and entrusting God with the resources. Paul said this is a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. What makes this an offering? What makes it a sacrifice? What makes it acceptable and pleasing to God? The amount of money it was? Is that what made it acceptable and pleasing? Or was it the condition of the hearts of the people that gave the gift? Do you see how it was the condition of the hearts of the people that gave the gift? So therefore, we need to be very careful that the condition of our hearts in giving the gift is correct. Do you see it there with me in the text? If you want what you give away, and you know what? We can make implication here to other things. Do you give your time away? Do you give your, your, your talents away? Your resources, all the resources that you have, you're giving it away. For what purpose? Do you want it to be an offering to God? Well, everything that you're giving, whether it be money or time or talent, whatever it is. You want it to be an offering acceptable to God? Or do you want it to be something that people see that's flashy? And they say, thank you, so you want thanks from the people, so you're, you're doing it again for you. But the condition of the heart matters. Our motivation in giving matters. That's the point. And Paul is saying to the Philippian church, what? Your motivation was right on. Thank you. Not that I needed the gift. Not that I'm in need. Not that I'm, oh, woe is me. And I'm saying, anybody, anywhere, please give me help. I'm, I'm going down. I'm trying to preach the gospel, but if I don't get enough money, I've got to stop. Was that what Paul was saying? Even in the beginning of the letter when he says, my imprisonment, you think my imprisonment can stop me from preaching the gospel? Nothing is going to stop me from preaching the gospel. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And if I remain in the flesh, it means fruitful labor for me. So as long as I'm alive, I'm preach the gospel. Whether I have much or whether I have little, whether I'm in prison or whether I'm free, my life is for the gospel. He's a giving his life. And this is what we're to learn is humble hearts of giving and seeing other people as more significant than yourself. Do you see how there's a correlation there with giving and seeing other people as more significant than yourself? I have, you need, you're more important than me. Here you go. There you go. But if I see myself as more important than you, I'm going to hold on to everything I hand, tight-fisted. And if I do give it away, it's only because I want something from you in return. Totally different situation. We need to make sure our hearts are right in giving. Now, Paul has been teaching them and giving them encouragement. He's kind of sending a, a receipt of sorts because it says, no one entered into uh, partnership with me in giving and receiving except for you only. And this, this was a term that was used, terms I should say, in, in commerce, in trade, in the day. And basically it means, um, uh, here's kind of the, the list. I used to work in, in, in a receiving area in, in, in retail, which I hope to never do again. But, but you would have a packing list and you would have to say, received, 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 done. Got everything on the packing list, right? In a sense, these are what the terms mean. No one entered into this agreement except for you. So here is my gi- here's, here's your gift. I'm acknowledging the receipt of your gift, and I'm telling you I'm well supplied. I received the gifts that Epaphroditus sent. I have everything. Thank you so much. But even in saying that, I'm sending Epaphroditus back to you because you need him more than I do. And when I send him, I'm sending my very heart. I'm, 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 giving, I'm giving Epaphroditus back. He did a great job. He himself was a great gift to me in my ministry, but I'm sending him back to you. Okay, and so he closes out the letter right here in verses 21, 22, and 23. Somewhat customary for Paul. In the letter to the Thessalonians, um, he says, Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. 
I put you under oath to have this letter read to all the brothers. In his next one, he says, I write this greeting with my own hand. First Timothy, second Timothy, he says, the Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you all. Greet uh, Prisca and Aquila and the household of Anisiphorus. He's continually in all of his letters He's talking to the people who are there. He's giving a final greeting. And all I'm saying here in this moment is that this is kind of how Paul ends his letters, is by giving a final greeting. And he says in verse 21, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord, uh, Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. When he says greet every saint, in every, not just in Philippians, but in every one of his letters, he's trying to bring community awareness of the gospel. Sometimes, don't we, get a little close-minded in thinking that this is what there is. It's our church. And there is part of that that's such a good thing because there's fellowship here. But at the same time, we have to be reminded that there is community, but there is a larger community as well. But the whole point being that Paul reminds them that the Christian life is one that is meant to be lived in community. The Christian life is one that's meant to be lived in community. We like. I've said it before, I've said it many times during the book of Philippians. If you are the type of person that is a me and my Bible, just me and God kind of Christianity, then the book of Philippians is never going to make sense to you. Because it is a community letter about people living in community. Because the Christian life is one that's meant to be lived in community and, and not in isolation. But where do many of us want to be? Isolated. Don't have to deal with all the messiness of relationships if you're in isolation. We are all very different just as they were. But we're all likewise on this progress of spiritual joy and spiritual progress. We're all headed in the same direction. We're all doing the same thing. And you know what? None of us have, uh, have arrived. Not one of us have arrived at the pinnacle of spiritual maturity. So we're all doing the same thing. And isn't that actually where you want to be found? is in the midst of a people who recognize that they're imperfect and they recognize that you're imperfect already. You come into the building and you sit down. No one has to ask you, are you perfect? Excuse me, I'm, I don't know you. Are you perfect? Because I want to know what I'm up against. None of us is perfect. None of us will be perfect until we are made perfect in glory. And so that's where we find ourselves. We are in a community of people who are imperfect, but yet all striving to the same end. Progress and joy in our faith. That's where we want to be. Together. And then he says, I think the best way this book could possibly end, uh, verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. What is he saying here? As you are found in Christ, so it's my desire that the grace of God would give you progress and joy in your faith. So it's, it's only by the power and grace of God that we can achieve progress and joy. It's only by the power of God. It's only by his grace in our life. And we have to remember that. Because if we look at this and we see this as a bunch of kind of imperatives, things that we must do, it's like if I do this and I do this, then I'm going to have this. But it is only by the grace of God that you can have anything at all. It is only by the grace of God at work in our lives. It is by his mercy that we achieve progress and joy in our faith. Do you deserve it? Do you deserve progress and joy in your faith? Are you entitled to progress and joy in your faith? Are you entitled to riches? Are you entitled to prosperity? Are you entitled to, what are you entitled to? Ultimately, the thing I'm entitled to is the thing that was taken away. The thing I'm entitled to is the wrath of God. That's what I deserve but that was taken away by Jesus Christ. And in place of that, I have mercy and I have grace. And as we continue on this path together, we have to be mindful that it is by the grace and mercy of God that all these things can exist. 
Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for your word and for the 31 weeks that we are able to spend in the book of Philippians. And I just pray that you would continue to help us to understand what all these things mean. And as we understand them, that you would bring true conviction and encouragement to our hearts, truly. Because it's not just an outward appearance that we're looking to change. We're primarily seeking progress and joy in our faith. We're primarily seeking an internal change. And that's not something that we can do, but it is certainly something that you can do. And so, God, we're asking that you would bring true change into our lives you would enable us by your mercy and your grace to experience true progress in our faith, recognizing where we're not meeting the mark, where we're not living up to the standards of Scripture and and giving us encouragement and conviction of heart to do it, to live as we should. And I pray that as we do this in community, that we would be encouraged by one another to continue to press on that we would all remind each other that to live is Christ and to die is only gain. That in our need, we remember that we have contentment with a peace that only you can give. So God, I pray focus our hearts, our intentions, our motivations on being humble and Christ-focused. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Next week, Jimmy will be preaching, and after that, uh, we're going to start looking at the letters of John together. So 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, that's where we're going to be. So if you want to start looking at that, I think it would be good. So 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, we'll take them in that order. Um, But today, we are going to take the Lord's Supper together, and I want to read for you out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I read this uh, often, and it's because the church in Corinth needed a reminder of what the Lord's Supper is. We need a reminder often of what the Lord's Supper is and what it is not. And uh, just pull a couple of things out of here for you. So the church in Corinth was meeting. They were having the Lord's Supper pretty regularly. And uh, Paul learned about what they were doing when they took the Lord's Supper. And he said, Uh, should I commend you in what you're doing? No, I will not. Instead, I'm going to instruct you in the proper way to have the Lord's Supper. And so uh, I'll begin reading in verse 17, 1 Corinthians 11. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you might be recognized. And when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. So they were eating the Lord's Supper, but he's saying that thing you're doing, you're calling it the Lord's Supper, but that's not what it is. It may look like it. It may taste like it. But understand that your motivations behind this are all wrong. So you need to change how you're doing this. It says in verse 21, For in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal, another goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup of the new covenant of my blood, do this as often as you drink it, and do it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, 
wait for one another. If someone's hungry, let them eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. So here are our instructions. As a church who is gathered together, I think we should be concerned with doing something with the right intentions. Doing something according to how the Bible has told us to do it, according to the tradition that has been laid down by the apostles. And so what is this tradition? Well, Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he had his disciples with him, and he broke bread, and he had a cup of wine, and he said, this broken bread is is like my body broken for you. And, and this wine that's poured out is like my blood being poured out. Drink it. And when you do it, do it in remembrance of me. And so there were two elements. And so we have two elements here together. And so we have the juice and we have the bread, which is our piece of cracker. And so we have these two things here this morning in representation of the body of Christ, which has been broken which each little individual piece is a broken piece off of one piece. So each little piece represents the broken body of Christ. And so then we also have all the cups filled with juice coming from the same source. So what we eat and what we drink all come from the same source. So listen to what I'm saying here. I'm tying together the concept of the sermon today. Is that our material condition does not matter because the Lord's Supper is the great equalizer to all people. There is no one who doesn't need the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. It doesn't matter where you came from today. It doesn't matter your condition today. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how good you were. It doesn't matter. None of this matters. What matters is that you have faith in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of your sins. This is what matters. And so when we come, we all come and we eat of the same bread and we drink of the same drink. It's the great equalizer. And so what do we do? Well, as it's been said here, that our intentions matter. So when you come and you eat the cracker and you drink the juice, are you doing so out of awkward obligation because everybody else is kind of standing up and going and I should do it too? That's not the right motivation, I think, right? But the motivation for us is that we're doing this because the scriptures have told us to do so. Who to do so? Those who are in Christ. Those whose broken body and the shed blood of Christ, those two things are applied to you. And those are the people who participate in this meal. Those who have had faith in Christ. So if you have not had faith in Christ, if you have not repented of your sins, the meal is not for you. It makes a mockery of this meal actually. And so, when we eat the broken uh, body, when we drink the blood, um, which are symbolic to us, what happens in that moment? What happens when we eat it? Is there a one-to-one correlation between our eating and drinking and the blessings of God flowing over us? I really used to think, because it's how it was approached, that if I were to simply eat and drink at this time, that the blessings of God would flow onto me. I thought the same thing about baptism. Didn't you a little bit? That when you do these things, that the blessings of God are being poured on you. Or it may be taught that when you eat and drink, you are communing with Christ in the heavenly places. That you're having a special type of communion with God that you otherwise wouldn't have. That's why it's called communion in some circles. That's why we do not call it communion. Don't believe that. It's the Lord's Supper. It's what it's called here by Paul. It's a supper, it's a symbolic meal to show what Christ has done for us. And we are to do it, and it is a grace of God to the church because it it calls us to do three things. Every time we take the meal, it calls us to do three things, and this is the blessing of God to us. Is that we look back. I know you're probably tired of hearing this. Yes, I'm gonna say it again. We look back at what Christ has done in remembrance of the cross. You must do that. It's part of our motivation. He said, do it in remembrance of me. If you're not doing this in remembrance of Christ, you're doing it wrong. Then we also look forward. We proclaim Christ's death until he comes. So we're looking forward to what Christ will do when he comes back in glory. But then there's also a here and now component to the Lord's Supper, examining ourselves. And so we must examine ourselves. If you are a believer and you take the Lord's Supper without examining yourself and judging yourself, yes, judging yourself, 
is there any sin in me? Where is my disobedience? And you acknowledge that before God and you confess it and you ask for forgiveness. Then you've judged yourself and you come and you joyfully take of the Lord's Supper because you know you have forgiveness in Christ's name. But if you don't judge yourself and you don't consider where the sin is in your own life, then you are not having the proper motivation for the Lord's Supper. And the text says the judgment of God is going to come on you if you, don't first, if you don't judge yourself. So what you're saying is I can come and have faith in Christ and yet be in sin and not care. That's what taking the Lord's Supper means if you don't judge yourself. So either you judge yourself today or you take the Lord's Supper and God will judge you. It doesn't mean judgment of wrath. It means judgment of discipline. And he specifically says, that's why some of you are weak and ill and some have died. Yes, weird, I know, but that's what it says. Some have died because of the judgment of God on them, thinking they could take the Lord's Supper and just take joy in the great gospel while living in sin. They knew they were. So we have to have the proper motivation. We have to judge ourselves, see what sin is in us and confess it before God and then come and take the Lord's Supper knowing you have forgiveness. Yes, you have forgiveness. If you have not ever placed your faith in Jesus Christ and all this is foreign, then now, here and today is the moment to confess your sin to God and acknowledge that without salvation in Christ, you would only have the wrath of God to pay punishment for God because I've sinned against God and someone's got to pay the penalty. And if I don't have Christ, it's going to be me that paid the penalty. And so you place your faith in Christ. This is why we're here. This is a joyous moment for the church. And it's something that we should take very seriously. And I hope that you do this morning. So we're going to pray. And Katie is going to play a song for us. And as she plays, uh, you in your own time can come and take uh, one of the cups there and you can go back to your seat and take them or you can, if you want to pray, you can kind of kneel wherever you want if you want to do that. Um, You take it in your own time and in your own way, but your motivation needs to be there. The proper motivation needs to be in your heart uh, for taking the Lord's Supper this morning. So I'm going to pray and then when Katie starts playing, anytime when you're ready, you can come and and, and take the meal with us. And, and uh, before we're done with our service today, we're going to sing one more song together, okay? Well, let's pray. Father, we uh, come together in Jesus' name, and we are participating today something that has been handed down to us, uh, initiated by the Lord Jesus himself. And we pray that our motivation is right in participating in this meal together. I pray for all of us that we would be truly reflecting on what Christ has done, that we would truly be anticipating in our hearts what Christ will do and having that hope and encouragement. But then that we're also examining our lives and saying, does my life measure up to a mature person in Christ? And where am I lacking? And that we would confess those sins to you and then come to the table in full reliance on you. So I pray for us this morning that you would give us help, proper discernment of our own lives. And we do pray that this time is honoring to you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.